So today I want to talk to you a little bit about live streaming. And Parallel Worlds is really a fantastic theme to think about gaming in general through. We could, of course, talk about the dual worlds we inhabit, the game world that you may be in playing, but also seated in your sofa, in your dorm, perhaps at work, if you're like me. Um, but there's two other themes of Parallel Worlds I want to pick up on today. Um, the spectator, the idea of the spectator who's watching the gamer play, and also those gamers themselves that are now creating powerful new cultural products for all of us to enjoy. So it's important to remember that spectating has actually been a part of gaming since the very beginning. This is one of my favorite pictures ever. The pleasures of looking over someone's shoulder, or perhaps even while somebody else has their hands on the controller, helping them, helping with puzzles, map finding. And YouTube has, of course, popularized that idea of spectating others play through static video on demand. But live streaming has really changed everything and is changing everything. The pleasures and the joy of sharing your online play are now facilitated through live streaming platforms. And importantly, they let the audience not only see somebody sh playing, but they allow them to communicate with them and to communicate with each other as well. And this is a new vibrant space of gaming that I think is having profound impacts on media and culture. Sites like Twitch and Mixer are bringing now in millions of viewers and broadcasters every month. And if you start looking at Chinese streaming sites like Doya or Huya, we're talking tens of millions of people for whom live streaming is now just a regular part of their everyday media experience. So part of what I argue in the book, Watch Me Play, which you can get a free Creative Commons copy of, you don't need to buy it, just go to watchmeplay.cc. One of the things I argue there is that people are really now transforming their private play into public entertainment, and that these live streamers are creative content producers that are making shows for their fellow fans, and also at times building pretty amazing communities. Live streaming really sits within a flow of changes that are happening in our culture. Within our leisure, you can think about the rise of gaming. Within our media, you can think about the rise of cord cutting, where you no longer even have cable television. And in changes in cultural production, think about the rise of user-generated content. So live streaming is this intersection point between the televisual, and I don't mean the TV box in your living room, I mean the aesthetic and experiential side of television and the vibrancy of internet and game culture come together. For those of you who've heard about eSports, which is formalized competitive computer gaming, live streaming has transformed it. It has amplified it. In just seven or eight years, live stream eSports has gone from being a niche fan space, where it was really hard, actually, to be an eSports fan. You had to know specialist sites. You had to download replay files. To being a place now where there's content generated 24-7. Complete with millions of dollars in investment, game companies now pay attention. They used to not care about esports. Um, sports organizations are now investing in esports, and investment funds are getting involved for good or bad, and I'm happy to chat more about that with you. So people often ask me, why do people watch live streams? There's lots of different reasons, um, from learning to be a better gamer, to sort of being drawn in by the performance of a particular player and the creativity people exhibit there. You might want to think about this multiplicity of motivations in your own media life. You probably watch different kinds of mu movies, listen to different kinds of music based on context, setting, 
moods, feelings. Live streams are the same. There's a complexity, there's a, a range of reasons people engage with them. And in fact, to me, one of the most interesting things I've found in my work over the years is what I call ambient sociality. People are now leaving live streams on in the background for company. Now, if you're like me and you grew up with television and you kept a television on all day long, in your house, that was part of what your family did. That's not so unusual, but I think this is an interesting mode that we're seeing with live streams now as well. Similarly, people sometimes ask me, why do people stream? Why would you put yourself on a live broadcast? Again, complex and varied reasons. For some people, it's about creating social connection. By live streaming, they're able to talk to other people who may be fans of a game or fellow gamers. Sometimes it's a form of creative expression. People are actually interested in developing it as a new genre. For some, like esports players, they may be contractually obligated to stream. Lots of different reasons, and I think part of what I'd love for you to take away from this is the heterogeneity of why people watch and why people stream. I've suggested a few times now that this is creative work. And I think if you pay careful attention to broadcast, you'll begin to see the layers that are happening. This isn't gameplay just straight piped out. What we're talking about are people performing and engaging in creative expression and action, creating layered visual representations. If you look at this, if you're a gamer at all, you realize there's a lot more going on the screen than a simple piping out of the game. And very importantly, live streamers are working hard often to know their audience and their community. If you visit the home of live streamers, you'll see some of this work in action. What you'll essentially find are small television studios, complete with AV setups, green screens, lighting systems, multi-platform moderation systems, third-party tools. I think this is another moment where parallel worlds is evocative, because while there's a world of mainstream media production going on, there's a parallel space of live streaming filled with small studios all around the world that is scrappy, DIY, and deeply, deeply networked. And while a lot of the conversation so far around user-generated content and fan activity has focused on its non-commercial applications, it's important to understand that these are platforms to facilitate people getting paid for their labor, and in fact, people aspiring to be new creative cultural producers. I actually think in moments like this of the gig economy and unsure labor markets, the creative opportunities live streaming offers for people can be compelling, even if it is still deeply, deeply precarious. I think these economic frameworks also then point to the ways players, game developers, users, platforms are not just coexisting, but are co-creating culture in very important ways. This is, I think, actually one of the most powerful parts of live streaming. Here's a quote I just want to read from one of the streamers I interviewed. He said, so when you stream and you add any elements of customization beyond the game itself, when you start creating your own content, when you start adding humor, when you start doing different things, I think it takes it to a new level that is outside of the black or white of saying it's owned by the game creator. It becomes something of your own, and it's part of the subculture of the internet as well. This is, I think, a fascinating provocation, an insight into both the emerging forms of creative production, but the stakes people have in their labor. And a big part of what I do in the book is try to understand the labor of this new form of 
production. These creative activities, then, from these streamers are a form, I argue, of transformative work. They are, without a doubt, creating new expression. They're certainly tr producing tremendous value to the grassroots and media production. And their activities, I think, offer a profound challenge to certain ideas of authorship and intellectual property that can continue to drive so much of our culture. And if we can invoke that notion of parallelism again, I think these folks are creating and working in a framework of cultural production and intellectual property that our mainstream notions are deeply out of step with, and I would argue far, far behind. It's not all rosy. <laughs> There's lots of interesting stuff happening there uh, in live streaming space, in, in esports, and in gaming, but there are serious problems that we also have to reckon with. There are two critical issues that I just want to say a few words about in the time today. As with many social media platforms, there's a crisis of community management. Far too often, companies want to invite people in and benefit off the content produce they produce, but not manage them once they're there. And again, I think, you know, I often say what's happening in gaming is not separate what's happening from our critical cultural conversations broadly. So racism, sexism, homophobia, a pernicious culture of harassment and exclusion exists in these platforms. We could make these similar arguments about what happens on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit. These are part of broader conversations that we have to be engaged with. I want to make another kind of intervention issues, I think, that we have to deal with right now, which is around our models of audience that we still have around gaming. Far too often, whether it's platforms, advertisers, or media organizations, far too often they're stuck in old models of audience. Gaming and the audiences for it are well beyond the 18 to 24-year-old male, and it's usually an assumed white guy, demographic that gets chased after over and over again. A new streaming service is going to launch soon, a new uh, gaming content production service, and again, they reiterate this demographic they're chasing after. Frankly, it's a really outdated model. <laughs> we know women and girls make up a massive component of the gaming market. Depending on how you slice it, they're more than 50%. And as gamers age, we see people in their 30s, 40s, and even like myself, 50s, playing. People of color are hugely important markets, often around consoles, and yet, Queer folks play games, too. So the model of audience we still have with gaming is far behind the reality. Gaming has actually become now a mainstream leisure activity, and I think we need to adapt to that. Far too often, also, audience modeling that relies on outdated personas or crude quantitative measures does stuff like this. I don't know if you've done this for yourself. You can go to Twitter and see what Twitter thinks you are. Twitter always thinks I'm a man. And in fact, Google does too. Because these systems, with their very crude rubrics, think that if you do things that they think men like, you must be a man. These are woefully insufficient models of understanding audience, especially when leisure preferences change so fast. I want to suggest to you, and I say this as a qualitative sociologist, if you're not thinking qualitatively about audiences and modeling, you're going to miss actual trends. And I, we can and really have to do better, because there's a whole world of gamers out there 
that are doing amazing stuff and creating fantastic communities that still are often invisible to the mainstream. Because really, in the end, this, this is this wonderful initiative called Smash Sisters. They run these fantastic tournaments for women in the fighting game scene. This is the current state of gaming as much as anything. And in fact, it's the future of gaming. Live streaming has given people an incredible opportunity to transform their private play into public entertainment. It's become a powerful site of emergent media. People are building communities around it in important ways. These forms of audience modeling, forms of harassment and exclusion, they dampen, they truncate the potential of participatory play, participatory media culture in this amazing space. I think there's so much we can do. I think there's tremendous vitality happening there. And I look forward to talking to you as the day goes on. I'll be doing one of the fireside chats later, and I'm sure there's many conversations we could have. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Tio. Tio, where was the Fortnite dance? <laughs> uh, you. You look like you're ready for it. Do it. Hey. Got it. You got it. I'm sure you got it. Hey, come here a second. I just want to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, and I hope this wasn't actually dealt with because I, I missed the very uh, first no couple of minutes of your talk. But um, we can't talk about live streaming without thinking about the impact, for instance, the attacks in New Zealand um, had. Those were shocking. And it kind of brought to, to light for a lot of people this parallel world of, of 8chan and what goes on there. Yep. What kind of safeguards can we see in the future? when it comes to live yeah. streaming? It's such a great question. So I think it's yeah, first... Yeah, come on, guys. Really yeah. pack up while we chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's first really important to understand there's great research that doesn't show a causal relationship between gaming and violence. I think it's so easy, you know, there, you know this notion of media panics where all kinds of new forms of media get pegged as the troublesome thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where we have to stop talking about games and start talking about forms of masculinity that are toxic, for example, mm -hmm. forms of community that promote harassment. And I think the HN one is a really great point. Mm -hmm. How can we actually start taking seriously what's happening in these spaces that car get carved off mm -hmm. as leisure or fun or trivial or online worlds? But I also mean in, in the kind of very technological, practical sense of safeguards on live streaming, pulling down this stuff when it's already out there, when it's happening. Yeah, I mean, there's a range of things that are out there already. Some of them are these platforms are putting in tools to facilitate moderation. Sometimes communities themselves are building those tools. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, anybody who's a game developer probably knows the minute you put in tools, other people are going to use them to troll others. Yeah. So in fact, one of the things we see that happens more often than not is women get attacked. They get kind of doxxed. They get um, harassed. People put in claims that they're creating infringing material as a way of mm -hmm. truncating their participation. So there are no perfect tech tools. All of this stuff has to have a human component yeah. that thinks about context and nuance. Yeah. Because otherwise, we miss really important things that are actually like happening in terms of facilitating those Pretty yeah. pernicious communities. Yeah, I don't know how optimistic I am then, because yeah. I mean, you're talking about basically three companies that are the gatekeepers for this online world, YouTube, Facebook, and Google. Yep. So are, are you saying that in the next 10 years, all we have to rely on is them hiring a bunch more people to moderate stuff? And we've also seen the documentaries that 
um, that kind of tell stories of the impacts of yeah. that moderation yeah. on the people who are hired to Absolutely. do it? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we can't rely on them. One, because it's clear they aren't doing enough. Yeah. Um, and two, because there are things I think we, who are, those of us who are building communities online can intervene, intervene in productive ways. So one of the things I do is I co-direct an organization called AnyKey, mm -hmm. which is a diversity and inclusion initiative for esports. And part of what we do is try to provide codes of conduct for people, provide training, provide, you know, if you go to our website, anykey.org, you can download our white paper that'll show you how to moderate your channel in some very basic ways. And you mean at home or? Yep, exactly, okay, right. yeah. Okay. So the platforms, they can't manage it all. So some of it is going to come down to all of us creating better communities in our spaces, trying to scaffold up tools to help people. My experience is a lot of people want it to be better, mm. and they don't know how to get there. So that's one of the things we do at AnyKey is we try to give them some basic tools to get there. Okay, so we should be nicer to each other. <laughs> And deplatform the folks who need to be deplatformed. Yeah. yeah. All amount. Yeah. Okay, thank you very right. much, Thanks Theo. Thanks so much. Thanks. <laughs> Cheers.